This is where my intro would go. If I had one. Hey all you Taco Bellions, this is Corey, the host of The World is My Burrito. Today's episode was recorded several months ago. There was a huge difference in quality and layout between my original, original episode one and this one. Enough so that I didn't feel the need to re-record and just left it as is. My structure has already changed a lethal and notes have been taken for future episodes. Let's boogie. Quote, I wrote this story in a time when all the news blaring on the television and in the newspapers was gloomy. The antagonism towards those groups calling themselves the New Left, indiscriminate acts of terrorism, the quagmire of Vietnam, and the Cultural Revolution in China. On the other hand, it was also a time of Japan's high economic growth, running at full speed for the world's top GNP spot. The sunshine and the shadows of this absurd time made me want to depict a strong, Machiavellian woman living through it. End quote, Osama Tezuka. Today on The World is My Burrito, I'll be speaking about Osama Tezuka's work, The Book of Human Insects. Originally published by Akita Shonen in their magazine Play Comic, running from May 9th, 1970 through February 13th, 1971. The demographic was seinen, or late teens to 30s. Some of the accolades include the manga charting on the New York Times manga bestsellers list, being the seventh best-selling manga for the week ending on October 8th, 2011. There was a TV drama directed by Kazuya Shiraishi and Izumi Takahashi, which ran from July 20th, 2011 through September 10th, 2011, totaling seven episodes. This work isn't inspired by events Tezuka directly participated in, but it is a look at the state of the world at the time. I'm reading from the 2012 release from Vertical that contains the whole story in a single edition, split into four chapters across 361 pages. No burrito is complete without some salsa because this is my hot take. If you dive into this without a previous understanding of the author, current state of world affairs, and the intent of the material, you will probably have a bad time. You will probably read a very different book than I did based on others' negative reviews. There are many nude scenes and some very heavy adult themes, but I personally enjoyed this noir murder mystery with a strong, determined, omnidimensional female protagonist. This is a politically charged work, and I really wanted to get myself and any listeners in the headspace of the man who made that introductory statement. This led to a very deep rabbit hole, but opened up my eyes to an insanely fascinating period of history that had been forming for decades on every front. That said, I am only going to cover the exact concerns Tezuka mentioned, and even then, try to keep them fairly brief so we can get into the real material. For starters, Japan was doing its damnness to keep up with the world as a global power after World War II ended. Due to the combined efforts of the Ministry of International Trade and Industry and direction of Prime Minister Hayao Ikeda, Japan was able to hemorrhage money into itself and limit foreign powers from negatively impacting their personal growth via trade. This unprecedented streak began to decline during the time this book was being written. On the negative end, the Japanese New Left was a newly formed radical political group known for those aforementioned indiscriminate acts of terrorism. Current stats say that an average of one to four members died every year as a result of internal struggles since their founding through their dissolution in 2003. Of the many subgroups within the New Left was a Maoist group promoting violent revolution. Speaking of Ol Miao Zedong, the Cultural Revolution in China was a huge deal. 
Mao, who sucks at leadership, causes tons of deaths, plays the victim, then blames others for those deaths he caused, somehow incited a class war in China, pitting the youth and urban workers against current leadership under the guise that said leadership had succumbed to capitalism. He used these underlings to force out local power and sort of took over China as the visage of proper leadership. Vietnam is possibly the deepest, so I'm going to quickly cover this one. Thanks to colonialism, Vietnam has basically been under French rule since the late 1800s, followed by nonstop battle since 1940. The Japanese dealt the biggest blow to French rule in March of 1945. In 1950, the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union formally recognized the Communist Democratic Republic of Vietnam, then began supplying them economic and military aid. This allowed Northern Vietnam the opportunity to fight against Southern Vietnam, an ally of the U.S. at the time. The Cold War was currently happening, so anything relating to communism, specifically against an ally, was a no-no. We're going to move on from here. Every time I searched the era using a different term or word, I came up with newer, deeper results. The 1960s were fascinating, and I recommend you check it out. Title History Tezuka has an obsession with insects. This will be expounded upon in a later episode, but it bears mentioning. The chapters are each named after insects. Spring cicada, leafhopper, longhorn beetle, and katydid. I didn't find anything conclusive as to the significance of these insects. The only similarity is that all undergo something at least resembling metamorphosis. Honestly, it could be that he just wanted to name them after insects. The Japanese title for this book is Ningen Konchuki. Ningen means human. The second word, Konchuki, comes directly from the translated title for French naturalist Jean-Henri Fabre's Souvenirs Entomologiques, a series of insect and arachnid studies dating from 1879 to 1909. The overarching theme of the book is inspired by Czech writer and playwright Karl Chapek's Pictures from the Insect's Life, a satirical play in which insects represent various human characteristics. Ningen Konchuki is clearly a dedication of sorts to those works. If you don't want this burrito spoiled, now's the time to put it back in the fridge. I'm going to lay it on you. This book is filled with topless scenes, misogyny, misandry, murder, aggressive sexual advances, not going to use the word rape, which we'll discuss later, and the main chick getting slapped and gut-checked, corporate espionage, gangsters, assassins, and multiple tragic love stories, each more tragic than the next. Keep in mind, Tezuka was still writing some amazing, inspirational children and teen stories like Astro Boy and Phoenix. Starting with the meat of it, it is a noir, and a depressing one at that. It isn't the kind of noir where the city is a rugged character. To the contrary, and in expected Tezuka style, the scenes always look beautiful and majestic, even in the rain at night. But we are always aware that evil lurks in the hearts of men. This is not as intensely action-packed as my previous episode on Dororo, but the panels are still just as cinemagraphic. Everything is precisely where it needs to be to give you that feeling of watching a film on the big screen. You can almost hear the jazz in the background when people walk or drive around the streets. It exists to tell a series of depressing stories that mostly develop the main character's past, while simultaneously advancing her relationship with the side character of that moment. The plot, if any, is mentioned in the first few pages. The main character screws people over. And it never truly veers away from that. On the whole, nothing is truly developing. People are just running in place until the rug is pulled from beneath them. 
Our primary character is Toshiko Tomura, a 20-something female hailing from a small town who is written as being irresistible to men. She has the ability to perfectly mimic others with a few limitations. In some instances, her dedication to this mimicry drains the original person of their energy, causing them to leave their profession. In other cases, she has the free time to begin, complete, then submit others' work before them, stealing their glory away and ruining their lives or causing them to commit suicide. Several times, she clearly uses sex to have her way. It seems she initially just mimics whomever is around her, later learning to select those who have something that can benefit her, all the while metamorphosing into a new being. Her greatest acts seem to be in the physical arts, like stage acting, stage directing, dance, art, and writing. Later in the story, she learns how to mimic an active coldness of the heart. Each time she mimics someone, the end result is that person either being forced out of their own picture or death, or both. Fun twist, Toshiko is devoid of personality. The story does a great job of showing that this natural talent leaves her with nothing of her own. She hasn't emotionally matured from childhood and, in some instances, exercises some blatantly childish tendencies. She doesn't appreciate her own skills either. Each time she learns something, she almost immediately becomes bored of it and begins to look elsewhere. Her final act of the book isn't to mimic, but to use someone else's work as her own. Toshiko's mimicry and metamorphosis are analogous to post-World War II Japan. Not knowing where to go or what to do, instead taking on the form of the world that is impressing itself upon it and going any which way it's taken. The final line of the book is her saying, I'm so lonely, I could get swept away, representing the slow of Japan's rise in a new and still unfamiliar world. With this, we're left wondering if she will always find someone to mimic, or will she inevitably succumb to her dissatisfied attitude? Our secondary character is Ryotaro Mizuno, a struggling interior designer and former graphic designer. He was a former lover to Toshiko, and the only person she seems to truly love, albeit more as an idea, not a person. The glaring problem is, she screwed him over big time. Ryotaro received an endorsement to enter a piece to the New York Design Academy's contest. He was working alongside Toshiko, who did her thing, copied his work, then submitted it sooner, effectively booting him from the competition and a chance for glory. If Toshiko is analogous to Japan's confused yet determined progression, Ryotaro is the embodiment of a return to innocence. Every single time Toshiko accomplishes something, she returns to Ryotaro as if trying to win his grace. This always results in rejection, because she is clearly set in her ways. Though Ryotaro mostly exists as a vehicle to repeatedly establish Toshiko's psychosis, he is also involved in one of the saddest stories in the book. There's a pretty well-written parallel story in this book, which I will abridge because it covers a lot. Due to interesting circumstances, both of our main characters marry separate people at roughly the same time. Toshiko marries an unbridled asshole who is currently involved in crippling his own company in order to usurp power. Her only reason for marrying this dude is to personally see to his ruin. Ryotaro marries Shijimi, a very simple country girl who looks identical to Toshiko. Tezuka weaves this story of Toshiko's hateful husband plotting a company takeover, which is where international corporate politics and Japan's relations to China and Taiwan come into play. The husband forces Toshiko to conceive a child. She devises a plan to switch places with Shijimi to get an underground abortion. 
during which time we learn that Shijimi has been deathly ill for some time. Through more events, we learn that Shijimi was emotionally and physically abused by her previous employer. I won't go into detail, because the book does a great job of nailing the timing for that. In keeping with the parallel, both spouses die at roughly the same time, but by different means. Ryotaro's story is resolved as definitely depressing as Toshiko's is questionably triumphant. He murders the man who abused, then aided the abuse of his wife, while she ends up alone in Greece, a location mentioned previously in the story. If there is a third character, it would be the magazine Bungei Shunju, a real monthly publication, which is also the first character we're introduced to. It's used several times as one of the most powerful tools. Toshiko uses it several times to submit literary works or antagonize others. This is actually how she meets her douchebag husband. The magazine even appears at the very end to help wrap up the story. Earlier, I avoided the word rape. While it happens in exposition, the few times we're made to think Toshiko is being raped because she acts surprised, the scene quickly wafts over it, then the story shows that she was not only aware of this outcome, but it was likely a premeditated act of manipulation. Again, it does write her like someone who is absolutely irresistible. She is aware of this and uses it to her advantage. The only actual rape scene is when her husband forces her to have sex in hopes of further controlling her via motherhood. Like I said, total douchebag. The book contains eight other real characters. Not every character is deep, but every character is used appropriately. Some are used as a means of developing another character. Some are used just to advance the plot. But almost everyone who exists beyond a single panel has a role that binds you to their emotions by the end of the story. It's Tezuka, so you know the art is good. The architecture is impeccable, and you can really feel scenes when people are driving the streets, sitting in a train, or walking on the shady side of an otherwise sunny building. There are some very impactful moments that are shoved into your brain because of how and when he chooses to wildly alter the art style. When Ryotaro is learning his wife's story, there is this emotionally morbid scene where he's drawn facing away and melting. You can visually see his hopes and dreams, well melting away in that moment. There are many dream and nightmare-like sequences that are psychedelic where shapes and inks are shined or distorted, conveying the appropriate mood. My favorite artistic choice has got to be the solid black panels. He uses black or mostly black panels to display someone's world effectively ending in that moment, like their brain just shut down and this is what they're left with. Now, as far as pest control goes with this burrito, because no taco truck is perfect, when Toshiko and Shijimi trade places, there is no clear time when they switch back. So you're left reading a few awkward pages under the guise that these two just live each other's lives now. That's it. That's all I'm going to complain about. It's great. It's wonderful. One of my favorite particular sequences in this book is uh, when an assassin, Arikawa, shoots a reporter named Alkusa. He takes him out to this abandoned area where there's a pile driver that drops once, I think it's every 10 minutes. And, uh, you know, you turn this page and there's seven panels of this pile driver coming down uh, and Arikawa shooting Alkusa at the time that it comes down. And it's just such a really cool scene. I mean, again, everything about this just feels like a noir film. 
It's hard to finish a whole burrito in just one sitting. So here's some takeout. My personal takeout from this was learning about the Sino-Japanese wars and Japan's relations with Asia pre-bombing. Japan's insanity-filled desire to reach the top after getting their shit kicked in is equally as impressive. For such a small country, they managed to kind of break even through everything. I've learned a lot more about communism in China than ever before. Something that I would recommend to listeners, just kind of a fun, short thing to look up, check out Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward plan. You can easily find it on Wikipedia. Uh, It is beautifully dumb, and uh, it, it was just like mind-blowing to read that and think that not only was that a thing that existed, an event that existed, but that this guy somehow got into power after very unsuccessfully taking over China before. There you have it. I hope your ears aren't bleeding from any recording indiscretions. Anyways, have you read or heard of The Book of Human Insects before? Or any of the works mentioned within this episode? Let me know. I'd love to hear your input. Definitely reach out if you read the book because of this episode. Now, let's get to Nacho business, because it's my business, Nacho's. I haven't had a ton of time for gaming recently, thanks to a bunch of last-minute holiday shoots, so I'm still on that Dragon Quest XI and Sushi Ghost grind. I'm hella excited about the upcoming Override 2 Super Mech League, which will feature Ultraman, Ultraman 7.2, Bimular, and Black King from the Netflix animated series. I'm also hella excited for the recent Dragon Ball Fighter Z announcements and may have to get back on that grind. I recently watched Fistful of Dollars for the first time ever. That was interesting. Asked the public if they wanted to hear my thoughts and got positive feedback, so that'll be an upcoming short episode. For some external podcasting content, check out Podcasters Assemble or any of my recent posts to listen to a review on Quantum of Solace, the 2008 James Bond film. For the next episode, there are two contenders, each on completely opposite ends of my time frame. So you'll have to wait to see which one gets selected. Either way, I'm enjoying this. Hope you are too. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can find me on all social media platforms at TwimbyPodcast or email me at TwimbyPodcast at gmail.com. I'm not going to spell it out for you because, let's be honest, If you made it this far and somehow don't know how to spell it, there's nothing I can do to help. I don't have a sign-off.